0: We uh, here in Europe, like the people of the United States, we, we are shocked and appalled by the death of George Floyd. Hi, and welcome to EU Confidential. I'm Rima Mumtaz in Paris, and that, you just heard, was the EU's foreign policy chief, Josep Burrell, commenting earlier this week on the killing of George Floyd at the hands of police officers in Minneapolis, Minnesota which sparked protests in the United States and also around Europe. Our EU editor, Andrew Gray, is taking a much-deserved break this week, so I'm filling in. And let me apologize beforehand for any drilling sounds you might uh, hear. My neighbors are still doing their renovations. And joining me to talk about the protests and transatlantic relations more broadly, hi, Matt, in Berlin. Hi there. And our chief uh, Brussels correspondent, David Hershenhorn. Hi, David. Hi there. So, you know, we heard Josep Perel call this, you know, an abuse of power, what's happening in uh, in the U.S. People who are in charge of uh, taking care of the order are not using their capacities on the way that has been used on this very, very unhappy death of uh, George Floyd. This is an abuse of power. And this has to be, has to be denounced, has to be combated in the States and everywhere. What do you make of that, David?
1: Well, this is a really sobering moment for everybody, right? But for Europe and around the world that has long looked to the United States as a beacon of freedom to see this sort of tumult, this sort of unrest, is clearly really quite sobering before we get into the details of whether or not any of this sort of uh, thing could happen in Europe.
0: Matt, what does it look like in Berlin?
1: Well, I would say that people have very much the same
2: reaction to what David just described. I found Burrell's comments interesting, though, because he himself has a record of being sort of critical towards the United States. And he seemed to be kind of using this as an opportunity to play into the sort of soft anti-Americanism that you have in a lot of uh, European quarters, but it did feel a bit forced to me for the, you know, foreign policy chief of the European Union to stand up and and to criticize the United States over this when, in, in fact, it was really, you know, the local police in Minneapolis who were to blame here on the larger question of, you know, people seeing this going on in the United States and wondering about the integrity of the American democratic system and so forth you know, I, we've seen this before, to be honest, I mean, going back, going back decades. So I, this isn't really new in the American context, I would say, I think what is maybe more worrying to people in Europe, or should be, is, are the pictures out of out of Washington, uh, you know, with the military police standing on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. Um, you know, these are not the kind of images that, um you know, Europeans like to see coming out of, you know, the, the country that is still their most important ally.
0: You know, I think just thinking about our panel, uh, and, and the composition of our panel this week, I'm, I'm struck that all three of us are Americans, but we're also other things as well, right? And we're all Americans who live in Europe and who have very deep ties to Europe. And I'm struck in France by one, I think what you said, Matt, about sort of Burrell, maybe tapping into consciously or unconsciously sort of a kind of level of anti-Americanism that may exist uh, in Europe is true, and it certainly is the case in in France that there is anti-Americanism. But I'm also struck by still the continuing um, inspiration capacity of the U.S. even in such times. You know, we've heard a lot lately that uh, the U.S. has lost its uh, you know world power standing; that its uh, soft power has been diminished, um, and yet. Now that there are these massive protests in in the U.S., you are seeing similar protests take place in Europe and also an opening in Europe to talk about their own race issues. 20,000 people came out in Paris on Monday evening to protest in the case of the killing in police custody of a 24-year-old black man in 2016, he was killed. And they came out on Monday because there was a new uh, medical report that uh, seemed to exonerate the police. And in that protest, you saw banners that, that read Black Lives Matter, and, uh, you know, references to George Floyd.
2: Well, I think it is in- inspiring, just in a different way. It's not coming out of the White House, but it's it's coming from the street, in this case. And the fact that, you know, people of color in Europe you know, use the protests in in the United States as as inspiration to, you know, fight for their own rights or to protest the, you know, abuses that they suffer in Europe sort of speaks for itself and and speaks for, you know, the continued influence that the United States and and its culture has on on Europe, I would say. I mean, as, as you point out, the history here is much different. Every country has its own sort of dysfunction when it comes to racial issues, certainly. And, you know, the United States with its history of, of slavery, um, you know, that's a very specific sort of legacy there. But, you know, these are issues that definitely tra- transcend borders. And I I, I do think that uh, that many people, many younger people in Europe still look to, to the United States um, when thinking about these issues.
1: I think, Reem, that the cultural influence of the United States has never been uh, questioned. The fact that so much TV news even, if you look at CNN's international reach or the the internet and Twitter and uh, the social media platforms. Uh, So what we see, I think, is much more of a cultural influence, but there is also a reaction in Europe where folks are looking at the United States and wondering if what they're seeing is a very broken society at a political level. I I think, Matt, you're absolutely right. We've seen these inflection points in the past. We've seen riots on the streets in the past, in LA, in Ferguson. But have we ever seen a president react in this way instead of trying to soothe and calm sort of coming at this with a much more bellicose approach? And, and you're right, it crosses all borders, all boundaries. I mean, Joseph Burrell is not on safe ground here considering the reaction by police to the 2017 uh, referendum in Catalonia. He's uh, you know, gonna face quite a lot of charge of hypocrisy in raising any question about police violence or police brutality. But in terms of, I, I think these things can both be true at the same time, right? That the right,
2: no, I, 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 I think they are. But I, I think what we we also saw this week, or hopefully, you know, many Europeans noticed this week, is, is that the political system in the United States is not all the Trump Republican Party. That there are plenty of other voices who are appalled by what they're seeing, even people who used to work in his administration. So I do think that we are seeing also the other side of America this week in terms of the the political system.
0: I think there's so much expectation and people still turn and look at the US as kind of, if you want, you know, the model, biggest liberal sort of democracy in the world. But you're seeing now perhaps also sort of american democracy trying to figure out what it wants to stand for and how it wants to deal with uh, sort of its own very old deep wounds and on the other side, on a more political side, on a more diplomatic level, we've clearly seen over the past three years that uh, sort of Trump's leadership uh, has not helped the, the liberal, you know, club uh, in the world. He has undermined multilateralism at every turn he can. And David, you wrote a piece that came out on Wednesday specifically about that. And I was struck by a quote that you had in there that said that basically a lot of leaders, especially Merkel, uh in Europe today are just waiting out uh, this presidency at this point. They can't even engage with it beyond that. Well,
1: European leaders uh, were especially uh, grateful that they got through a summit, a NATO summit in December, without any big blow up in the UK. It was a celebration of NATO's anniversary. Trump was there. Uh, The Tories were really worried because they were at the height of a general election and they were able to get through that without any big blow up, uh, thanks to Trump. And they were hoping that things would kind of coast forward. The relationship was bad, but a sense that it couldn't quite get much worse. And then this extraordinary pandemic, uh, the COVID-19 situation unfolds. And for the first time they're seeing A global crisis with almost zero American leadership. Uh, In fact, Trump, uh, you know, upping the tensions with China, uh, pulling out of the WHO, which uh, certainly uh, has alarmed a lot of folks, including Chancellor Merkel, part of her decision making and saying she was not prepared to uh, be at a G7 summit in Washington in person later this month. So at a point when they thought it couldn't get much worse, but we're hoping it would sort of be stable that they'd figured out kind of how to work around him, if not with him, it did continue to deteriorate. And now at this point, we're looking at a situation where just five months from an election in the United States, we're almost back where Trump started with Europe as a bit of an afterthought. He started out with a lot of diplomatic posts vacant in Europe, uh, not paying much attention to Europe except uh, for the occasional bash of NATO is obsolete or what have you no ambassador right now in Germany. Uh, Rick Grinnell has left an acting representative in Brussels after uh, Gordon Sondland was fired in in the impeachment mess. And so there's a recognition that nothing will change really until November, that if Trump wins, they'll have another four years uh, to deal with him. But really up until uh, November, there won't be a significant shift and uh, no real breakthrough expected.
0: Matt, You were the person who got sort of the first on the record uh, comment from the German government last Friday, saying that Angela Merkel did not want to go to DC to attend this G7 summit in June. I was really surprised that they would go on the record and say it so bluntly. What did you make of that? Why did they decide to, to make that move?
2: Well, I think as David said, you know, there is a lot of frustration here over the U.S. decision to pull out of the WHO and more broadly not to engage more constructively in – you know these international fora and all of all of these international organizations have suffered some degree of neglect and for a country like germany is, and for a lot of the smaller european countries these international mm-hmm. organizations are extremely important because this is where they sort of you know can feel their 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 voice will will be heard it's less important uh, traditionally for for the united states but you know, we've we've never really seen an an administration uh, just simply ignore uh, these bodies to the degree to degree that uh, that the Trump administration has. So I think that what we're seeing right now basically is that many European leaders, including Merkel, have determined that it's better to just wait it out and to see what happens in November. It makes sense. It's now June, so you know why engage? Why go to a G seven meeting, which it's worth remembering is not a decision making body anyway. I mean, this is more just about Relationship uh building and so forth, but if you expect Trump not to be reelected, uh, which you know I think many people here do um, they they might be thinking well you know what 's what's what 's the point
0: there 's definitely sort of a, a difference in approach. I feel like Merkel is at the point where she 's saying i 'm over it like i'm i 'm done i 'm not engaging anymore. Macron, on the other side, you know, has taken a more ambiguous position when it comes to the G7. He's always been, I, I like to call him the Trump whisperer uh, for Europe. You know, we saw it in his own G7 that he hosted last year when, you know, as soon as Trump landed, uh, he had an impromptu lunch with him and kind of just was his body man in many ways. He didn't let him out of his sight too long to make sure that he could kind of contain any kind of Trump outbursts. And it worked. And so I'm, I am really wondered, are you able to sort of think of how is this saga going to end? Are we going to have a virtual summit in June? Are we going to have a, an in-person summit in September? What's, what do you think is going to happen? Well,
1: Reem, you know, there are limits to what the Trump whisperer can do, right? I think you're absolutely right that the Beeritz summit worked out, but not without a lot of extraordinary effort and maneuvering by Macron to contain Trump from the moment he hit the ground. And what they were looking at here is a summit on Trump's home turf, where there are limits to how much they can contain and control him. And whether it was strategic or not, I think they are keenly aware of the fact that Merkel and Trump have never quite gotten along. So if there's a tough message to deliver, better for her to do it because she, he doesn't like her anyway, and Macron is sort of the, the good cop, again, intentional or not. Whether they'll actually be able to have this summit really is unclear. First, Trump was talking about September. September is an awfully busy time. We've now seen, again, Merkel with has UNGA. An, with the UNGA. With the UNGA, but also the, the Europeans were planning a big summit with China. Um, that's now been postponed. And Merkel, to her side, has at least some consistency uh, in that she was also resisting an in-person uh, European Council summit, uh, this month, saying it was too soon. You know, In Brussels. Very common sense approach saying that, you know, the, the health situation just isn't, uh, isn't right for it yet, uh, given that uh, once you're into October, you're very close to the U.S. election. And if Trump loses that election, who will want to spend time uh, attending a, a G-Summit summit with a lame duck president? So I think there are real questions about whether this summit will happen. And if it doesn't, I'm not sure... Folks will be all that disappointed, especially if they can have some virtual meetings and, to a degree, continue what cooperation they're able to muster in the economic response, uh, the response to uh, the pandemic, even as as things improve.
2: Yeah, I think there there, there are two issues here. N- number one, that the, the, the G seven is basically more important for for France than it than it is for Germany because. You know, France is, you know, not to offend our French friends, but a slightly diminished power. So the fact that they have a seat at the table of, you know, this. You know, very powerful uh, group is is more important to them, I would say, uh, than to Germany. The other thing is, though, that politically, you know, Merkel doesn't need this. You know, she doesn't she doesn't need to show that she's this powerful person by virtue of the fact that she gets invited to the G seven. I would also say, though, I just don't see that it ha- that it can happen w- without her, at least not not in person because then it would look like there's a division in the Franco-German relationship. And I think uh, it could backfire on Macron, actually, if he were to go and, and Merkel weren't there.
0: I, I doubt I doubt that would happen, actually. And I, I agree. I think the Franco-German uh, relationship is much more structural for France. And unfortunately, that's all the time we have for our conversation this week. I'm sure our producer, Christina, is going to have uh, her work cut out for her. But thank you both.
1: Thank you. Thanks for
0: and now let's get to our feature interview with Manon Aubry of the French party La France Insoumise. It's a far left party and she's a member of the European Parliament. Our producer Christina Gonzalez caught up with the MEP over a Zoom call earlier this week.
3: So my name is Manon Aubry. I'm a newly elected or almost newly, because now it's a year ago, um, member of the European Parliament. Uh, I come from the south of France, and I'm sitting in the um, GUE-NGL group that I'm chairing, which is the left group in the European Parliament.
4: So can you tell our listeners a bit more about your background and how you ended up in the European Parliament? I think one thing maybe for them to know out of the gate is the fact that you're among the youngest members of the European Parliament at the age of 30. So maybe you can tell us how somebody, um, you know, so young, younger than me, for example, (laughs) uh, ended up at the European Parliament.
3: (laughs) Well, um, yeah, apparently I'm even the the youngest uh, chair of a group in the European Parliament ever. Uh, But I should say that uh, not even me would have uh, predicted that I would end up there. Because as for many people, politics was not made for me. Uh, Before being elected, I've been working for Oxfam, the NGO Oxfam, where I was a researcher and spokesperson on uh, tax justice and inequalities. But before that, I've been working for a couple of years uh, in Africa. And prior to this, I've been working mostly in the humanitarian sector. So, you know, I was part of the people who, in a way, did politics, because when you advocate for policy change, It is part of political action, but I would have never envisioned myself entering the political sector until I was offered to lead the list of France Insoumise, the left party in France for the European elections. And I'm gonna be honest uh, with you, I've been uh, hesitating a lot. And my first decision was actually to say no, because I was thinking like, I actually hate politics. Uh, I hate the ones doing politics. And then I actually realized that With that answer, I would never get the opportunity to change things. And second reason was that, you know, working in the NGO sector, it was a great experience. But I've been frustrated so many times when I've been advocating for something, but I've been losing. And at the end of the day, I was not the one uh, pushing the button or yes or no on a directive or whatsoever regulation. And I figured... That at the end of the day, the most efficient is being that person.
4: And has your experience over the course of the past year been what you expected it to be? To some extent, yes.
3: And to some other extent, no. To some extent, yes. It's been a year, a very busy year, in which I could have, you know, touch upon a lot of the issues we've been dealing with during the campaign, you know, talking about austerity measures, talking about climate change. But on the other hand, uh, there are things that I of course knew about, but it's different from leaving them. One of them is to see how powerful and active lobbies are. Of course, as I said earlier, I, I knew about it because I've been fighting them already from the outside and from my NGO hats, but seeing them from the inside is is quite you know striking. And the second point is maybe how the european institutions are somehow disconnected from the reality again that's something i knew but from living inside what we call the brussels bubble that i didn't know before because i you know was just living in france and of course i i was dealing with some of the eu politics for, for my work but being part of that bubble now you feel that there were like a very thick wall between the parliament and, and the outside. And, and you could leave into those walls and actually not seeing the outside light. And that's how you end up having some of the European measures, I I believe completely disconnected from the reality of people. This is as well, I believe one of the reasons why people are things so far away from uh, EU politics. And at the end of the day, it definitely fuels skepticism about the the European Union that is in a way destroying itself, I believe.
4: Can you maybe tell us one example of a way in which you are trying to break out of that bubble or break through those walls that you just described that maybe other MEPs could also emulate in order to bridge that divide?
3: You know, to be honest, I was worried myself uh, that it would become one of those bureaucrats sitting in the EU bubble and uh, uh, pressing yes and no to directives but not even knowing you know how they are gonna be implemented in practice, what it's gonna change for people, etc. So I took that initiative to launch an initiative that I called in French mille dans une Europe en Berne which means a thousand kilometers, uh, in a I don't know how to really translate, but in a Europe that doesn't go well. And the point, um, the objective, I would say, is twofold. Uh, One is to go talk to people, so uh, talk to uh, farmers, uh, talk to uh, NGOs uh, working on migrant issues between France and Italy, for example, and to to learn from them. Because it's not because you enter politics that you're supposed to know about every single thing that you're actually voting in the parliament. And my objective was to bring their experiences, their expectations inside the parliament. So that's the first objective. And the second objective is to bring EU politics down to them. And I think more generally, our responsibility as MEP is to be connected also to social movements, uh, to those actually asking for change, the for climate, for example. And I believe our group is one of the groups really trying to have the strongest connections as possible with them, and being their voice in a way. And when I'm speaking in the parliament, I feel I'm not speaking on my behalf or on behalf of my group or my political party, but on their behalf, or at least that's what we're trying.
4: And how much of that do you think is reflective of, as you kind of alluded to there, more of a generational approach? It
3: is, it is, you're right. Um, You know, I'm born, I'm born after the, the fall of the Berlin Wall. So, I'm part of those generations who've learned about the European Union in history books, and we are paying the consequences of past generations' mistakes. That's why young, you know, the youngest are angry. That's why uh, the youngest are as, as well entering into politics through quite radical messages but also very green messages. And I think it's actually good news because it's an opportunity to change our system. I would say on top of my age, it's also because that's all what I've done so far. I come from uh, the NGO sector and I wouldn't define myself as a politician, which is by the way, not a job. Some tend to forget because they do this all their life long. I'm just an activist, a simple activist. And I happen to be at the moment, sitting in the parliament, but whatever I do after, I'll remain an activist and hopefully the same activist. Of course, I might evolve in what I think, I might adapt myself. And, you know, we should always question what we think, but I hope to always remain that activist and also use some of the methods of youth activists like, you know, civil disobedience, for example, that of course not new, but became very trendy into in, in nowadays activism, just because traditional methods are not working. So I believe we need stronger methods, as long as they're peaceful, obviously. Uh, I'm not proud of those people who claim for violence activism.
4: I'm curious as to how you feel you have been received or how well you are listened to by fellow members in the European Parliament from perhaps other political groups, but then also, perhaps, citizens that you represent as well?
3: It's a good question, to be honest, because uh, as an anecdote, uh, even before I've been uh, elected as, as a chair of my of my group, the very first day I came to the parliament, so more or less exactly a year ago, I've been taken as for an assistant. And it's something to do with, you know, I'm a young woman. Of course, I'm, I'm not wearing a suit, I don't have gray hair. So I clearly had the feeling that I was not taken seriously. But just because I don't fit into your stereotypes, the ones that have been built across decades of European politics, that my voice is not worth yours. And that's always the question I, I ask people. And I feel there, I, I have several disadvantages. I'm a woman, I'm young, and I come from the NGO sector. So for them and for a lot of people, this those are uh, three additional reasons why I need to prove that I'm legitimate. But I'm, tr- I'm trying to use it as an incentive to actually make my point. So to answer your question, I feel it took time before uh, people took me seriously. But once you're able to show that that's Being an activist doesn't mean you can't have those technical detailed discussions.
4: So the European Commission recently unveiled its 750 billion euro recovery package in addition to its proposal for a new 1.1 trillion euro budget. Um, And when Commission President Ursula von der Leyen presented this to the European Parliament last week, you were among the first in the debate in the Parliament to be quite critical, I would say, about the package Can you just give our listeners a summary of what it is about this proposal that you are critical of and perhaps what you would like to see the commission take on board?
3: The commission has been very clear that the money is going to be dispersed, but states will have to uh, follow an economic trajectory, uh, whatever the terms that they use. But in other words, we'll have to uh, respect certain economic criteria. In other words, um, they will have to uh, answer the Commission's recommendations on the matter. And if those recommendations coming from the Commission are similar to the ones we've had over the last years and decades through the European semester and the Growth and Stability Pact, well, we can be very worried because that's precisely what led us to the situation nowadays. A second worry we have is no matter whether it's Grants are loan, as long as the own resources, which is um, one good point of the recovery package. Just to nuance what you were saying, we were. Um, I think we're part of the the people we're trying to to be constructive. So I think having new own resources that are, by the way, uh, helping the ecological transition, like the carbon tax at the EU borders, this is a good, a good news. I, I believe. But as long as those own resources are not enough to pay back the loan that the commission is going to take, which probably won't, and we're almost sure won't, even though uh, Ursula von der Leyen didn't give us some number about their own resources, um, what it means, the states will have to pay them back, to pay that money back. If the states have to uh, pay that money back, well, uh, it's just adding some debt to existing very important debt. Um, So it doesn't solve the debt crisis in which I believe we are running. And I'm still very surprised that they're not using all of the tools that the EU could use. And I think it's the best time to end some of the dogma that have prevented us from having ambitious economic politics uh, and economic policies like the use of the uh, European Central Bank. And we are one of the only places in the world where we can not make any use of the monetary policy. Meaning in practice, I think the ECB should intervene even more than what they're doing now, because it is sort of hypocrisy that they're, you know, uh, repaying the debt from states. Well, they should directly uh, borrow um, uh, money, to uh, loan money story to to member states and we should cancel the corona debt. The uh, ECB already owns a significant amount of debt through their purchasing program. I think this debt should be cancelled and then in a second time uh, the the ECB should be able to issue perpetual uh, debt to a member state. But for this You need to turn the page of years and years of uh, dogma and especially of uh, the independence of the monetary policy, which I believe doesn't make any sense.
4: And just one final question, because it was the one year anniversary of the most recent European election. And um, at this one year mark, you decided to launch a Twitter campaign which was highlighting at least 45 examples that you had uh, collected over the course of your first year, um, highlighting EU ethics violations or examples of EU's failed transparency when it came to lobbying practices, for example. Can you tell us a bit about why you decided to put your energy into launching this campaign and what you hope to see come out of it?
3: Well, the origin of that campaign is, you know, being a new MEP, I was witnessing from the inside some of the uh, conflicts of interest, violation of transparency rule, revolving doors, etc. And those were all separate cases. But I did realize that those are not slip-ups, but they're the result of a culture of corporate capture and impunity. So I decided to compile all of those situations, and I realize, like all of these situations, are not just isolated. They together form a sort of trend, a trend where the ones making policies in the EU institutions are, to some extent, more do lobbies rather than you know MEPs elected, you know, on behalf of the general interest. So I will keep doing that exercise until the end of the mandate and, and until I we get some some chance to actually tackle the situation. And that's why uh, we are suggesting with our, with our group uh, the setting up of an EU ethics body to bring more transparency, to address the ethical issues all across the EU uh, institution. And it's a matter of repairing people's trust in public action. So I feel like a, a whistleblower uh, from within the European institution. But hopefully this will lead to institutional change at the
0: end of the day. That was MEP Manon Aubry, and that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And please take a moment to rate us by clicking some stars and leaving a review. And you can always send us an email. The address is podcast at politico.eu. We'll be back next Thursday with Andrew back in the hosting chair. Until then, I'm Rim in Paris. Thanks to our producer, Cristina Gonzalez, and thanks to you for listening.